Oi, 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 oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned. You're listening to Rowan Prant Method, where myself and a unique guest discuss topics that I find interesting and that you might find relevant to your life. On today's episode, we have Caitlin McNamara, who is a speech pathologist specialising in the areas of head and neck cancer. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thanks, Rowan. Very happy to have you here. So, very interesting conversation that we had when we met. Just yeah, as, as soon as I heard of your experience, then I had questions, obviously, about people recovering and things when it, when it comes to, you know, how they can move forward from this serious situation. So can you give us a bit of a backstory? How did you get into this particular field? So um, as a teenager, I didn't have any sort of idea of what I wanted to do as a job. Um, I didn't, I don't really have a dream job, even to this day, you know, I don't, don't dream of labour. I um if I could, I'd be an ocean swimmer and, a, you know, eating berries on a beach or somewhere. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we all have to work to live. Um, so I did a speech pathology in year 10 for work experience um, on the advice of my mum, who's a nurse. She said, do something in healthcare because your job's always safe, uh, but don't be a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> Does she give you reasons why not to be a nurse? Um, nursing is hard. Yeah. And our my nursing colleagues are incredible and they're, you know, without them I can't do my job properly. Um, but they're underpaid and overworked yeah. and nursing hours are really hard if you want to have a family at any point in your life. They're not family-friendly hours. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, she said do something else. <laughs> so speech pathology was a thing you chose for work experience? Yeah, yeah. So I did a week at Frankston Hospital. Yeah with the speech pathologist there, um, four days in, or three, three days in paediatrics and a day in adults. Yeah. And the day in adults was what really interested me. Um, and then from there in year 12, when we had to kind of select unique um, preferences, I put down speech pathology and I put down graphic design because I could draw. Yeah. Um, and I put down archaeology because I think dinosaurs are cool. Yeah, everyone <laughs> thinks dinosaurs are cool. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. Exactly. <laughs> and then I got into speech pathology first. Really? Um, so it was just luck of the draw? It was luck of the draw. Um, so I had a good score. I could have, you know, picked any of the three. Um, got the offer for speech pathology first. Yeah. Um, and then I was only 17, so I took a year off to be able to work and, you know, hang out with my friends and do all the kind of 18-year-old things that you want to do. Yeah. Um, and then after that year of um, deference, I started the course, um, which involved moving up to Albury. Um, and I lived with my grandma for four years up there, which was so great, um, and studied up there and kind of was like, okay, I'll get through a year or two. If I don't like it, I can always change degrees. No idea what I changed to, but I figured that out if the, the time came. Yeah. Um, and as, as I kind of said with the work experience stuff, I kind of got into it and then really started um, being interested in the adult side of things. I had no interest in paediatrics. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, got to the, the adult placements and kind of thought, yeah, this is interesting. I can do this. Yeah. Um, 
What was it that appealed to you just out of curiosity? Because I imagine it would be quite confronting when you're working with very vulnerable people that are in that situation. There'd be a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress about the future. Yeah. What attracted you to that area? I I like adult practice because um, you're it's very medically adjacent. So the sort of stuff that interests me and the sort of stuff that kind of gets me going is the the figuring it out, like figuring out why is this person presenting this way? Um, you know, why do they have the swallowing difficulties that they have or why do they have the communication difficulties that they have? And for an adult, that's very much tied to their medical status. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's really interesting. Um, and I get to work really closely with my nursing colleagues and with my medical colleagues um, and be part of that team. Um, without having to do the terrible hours of a junior doctor. Yeah, 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 excellent. So for everyone listening, I am going to have to put the aircon on because it is ridiculously hot in Melbourne <laughs> right now and we're only a couple of minutes in. So give me two steps because that is hot. Is that working? All right. And I'm back. I had to rescue us because that was crazy hot. So hopefully we'll bring it down to 19 degrees and it'll be smooth sailing from then on. So you got into it. I love the fact that you love the problem solving. What sort of problem, how would you go through something like that? What sort of reasons do people come to see you? So I guess for context, all my work is in hospital. Yep. Um, so I'm not an outpatient or, you know, private clinic based service where people can come and see me. Um, I'm in hospital, so I'm seeing patients in the wards, um, in ICU, in ED, um, you know, across the lifespan, basically. Um, and then our head and neck service has an outpatient clinic as well, where the, the doctors and I see the patients um, pre and post surgery. So really, it's a hospital, so anything could walk through the door at yeah. any moment. Um, and we do, we see patients in ED um, and we see them in the wards and we see them in ICU, we see them all over the, the hospital. Mm. Um, so it could be anything. It could be a car accident with a head injury. It could be a stroke. It could be a, a cancer. It yeah. could be um, a pneumonia, you know, swallowing which is sort of make up the bulk of our work as speech pathologists in hospital with adults, that is such a complex mechanism of events that have to happen for you to swallow safely and effectively that any change in your stasis off your baseline can impact it and people yeah. don't um, often know that that can happen, especially in elderly people. Things like a UTI or a cold or a flu can really impact their function. Really? Yeah. It's interesting um, th considering how you would have to do that problem solving, looking at all the factors and things that you would seemingly not think were related at all, like a UTI and how that would affect the throat. What are the signs people can look out for when it comes to something like this? Because obviously you mentioned cancer being one of them, but there's things like car accidents, et cetera. That's uh, sort of self-explanatory. But what are the things that people should be looking out for in, in terms of early detection? Um, swallowing or head and neck cancer? Both. Both. Yeah, let's start with swallowing. <laughs> let's start with swallowing. So um, someone having swallowing difficulties, they're going to have, um, I guess, what's sort of the two main factors are coughing and choking. Yep. So if you're coughing repeatedly when you eat or drink um, and it's that sensation of things going the wrong way, so it's going down the wrong pipe all the time, 
you know, that happens to you and I every now and then if we're distracted, if we're doing something else while we're eating or drinking, like we're more likely for that, you know, aspiration it's called officially to occur. But in in older people that can – or people with comorbid conditions, so syndromes or other diseases that can impact their swallowing muscles, um, MND is a good example. Mm. Um, In those sort of people – what you're going to see is that coughing and choking all the time um, or regularly. Um, And it's always related to food and drink. So they've just had a sip of their water and they've started coughing and it's reactive to that water Mm. um, because it's gone down the wrong pipe. Um, And so that's sort of the main thing to look out for in in an adult who's having a swallowing difficulty. And then you have um, subsequent impacts as well, like weight loss. um, Mm. And that's because they if they're coughing and choking on their food, um, it's not going to the place it's supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And in terms of cancer, is there ways that people can detect early? Is there screening that people can be doing? Yeah. So there's no early detection program for head and neck cancer like there is for bowel cancer, for example. Mm. Everyone gets a free kit over a certain age um, in Australia, which is fantastic. Um, But in head and neck cancer, there's no early detection program, no early screening program. A lot of our referrals come from, you know, diligent GPs and dentists who notice things um, in people's mouths that aren't normal and refer to an ear, nose and throat surgeon um, for a specialist opinion. Um, So things that people need to look out for are like uh, oral lesions, so ulcers, lumps, bumps that don't go away on their own, um, that might be painful that might bleed, um, things like red and white spots in the mouth, those also need to be looked at by a specialist. Mm. Um, lumps in the neck, pain in the jaw, blocked ears, um, uh, painful ears, painful um, your TMJ, so your um, temporomandibular joint, which is right near your ear, pain, pain in there that doesn't go away. Mm. Um, Weight loss can also, unexplained weight loss, so if you're not trying to lose weight and you're losing a bunch of weight, um, it's generally a good idea to to chat to your GP about that because if you're not intentionally losing weight, it's usually a sign that something else is going on. Yeah. Um, And those are sort of the main things that people kind of come to us complaining of. The other one is a hoarse voice um, or, you know, they've lost their voice or they've got a sore throat that just hasn't really gone away. The GP might have given them some medication for laryngitis or... Yeah. Um, anything like that, but it still hasn't resolved it. Um, you know, I've seen <laughs> one of my patients um, had a, had a, had no voice for four years. <laughs> yeah. And only when it got so bad that no one could understand her did she go to a GP and the GP was like, wow, you need to see an ENT. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did, was she seeing her GP for other reasons throughout those four years? I am not sure. I can only assume probably. Yeah. Um, given that, you know, she's generally well put together um, lady who takes good care of herself otherwise. Yeah. What I assume happens is that she didn't think anything of it and she didn't think to mention it to yeah. the doctor. It's and it's really interesting because not only when it comes to our health but just anything in general, when you're looking at things like the region beta paradox that, you know, things need to get – if it's not so bad, you don't do anything about it. Well, that boiling frog analogy, you know, it sits in the, if you dump it in boiling water, it jumps out. But if it sits in and you gradually build it up, it can die. And I guess mm. it's the same thing with this. Subtle little change in the voice or in the throat, 
yeah, it's not that bad until it gets to the point that there's a serious issue and like I'm actually going to look at this four years later. Yeah. It's uh, really, really interesting to see the things that we just tolerate and accept as a, another day at the office and just this is how my life is now. This is, this is how things are. Yeah. So when should people be looking at doing something about this? Should it be as soon as they notice that something's happened or, you know, do they wait if they see their GP and they just give them antibiotics and they say, you know, you're good to go, but they don't feel right about it, should they follow up and be pushy? Absolutely. What's the go? Yeah, I think there's a general um, acceptance in Australia that our GPs are um, incredibly skilled. Of course they are. They have to be a jack of all trades. Yeah. Um, and they have to know so much about so many different aspects of, of the body and medical care. Um, but at the end of the day, <coughs> excuse me, at the end of the day, they're not a specialist. Yeah. So if you do have that sense of, okay, I've, I've followed up on this once or twice, I've been to the GP, something's not quite right. It's not going away, whether it be a sore throat or a hoarse voice or a lump that hasn't gone away. Um, we all have that, that absolute right to say, okay, uh, things haven't resolved, can I have a referral to a specialist? Yeah. And every GP should write you a referral to a specialist if you ask for it. Yeah. Of course, they should hopefully preempt that you need a specialist. Yeah. Um, but sometimes the the wheels move a little bit slowly because you've got 10 minutes with this incredible doctor who then has to see, you know, 50 other patients that day. Yeah. And so things do get missed and lost. Um, and when you know something is not right within yourself – just say, just go for it because it's your health um, and you've got to take um, ownership of that as much as someone else is helping you. I love that you brought that up because I think so many people are passive when it comes to their health. You know, you say, you suggest that potentially they should go check out in with their GP and get some advice. They go in, give a couple of answers. GP says you're good to go, basic blood tests, I'm healthy, off I go. They're not being proactive or assertive in their own health journey. They're not in the driver's seat. And I think... Yeah. It's a scary place because, as you said, they've got maybe 50, 100 people going through the office for a 10-minute period. They're human beings. They have good days, bad days. They miss things. They make mistakes. Yep. It's, it's the same as everyone else. So being assertive and saying, look, I don't feel right about this. I want to get checked. And getting the right opinion from someone who's an expert in that field is essential. So anyone that's yep. listening that has any concerns about any health condition, not just related to your head and neck or anything like that, please be pushy with your GP it's better that you live as opposed to just go, whoops, we missed something. Yeah. And we're also, I think we're still fighting um, the traditional, I guess, Aussie battler culture as well, which is that things are okay, things aren't that bad, I'm just going to push on because it'll be all right. Like all is well basically until I drop. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many of my patients' stories start with, I was fine, I was just getting on with it. Yeah, I had some symptoms but – I basically kept going until I woke up and I couldn't breathe anymore. And then yeah. I came to hospital and then this whole thing cas cascaded from there in terms of massive surgery, radiation, all of that sort of stuff. Just so many of my patient stories start with that, that kind of same story yeah. in different iterations. Um, and we still, I think, see that a lot, especially with men. Um, I don't want to go to the GP. I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like coming to hospital unless something's really, really wrong, mm. I'm not going to go. Yeah. Um, and if we had gotten to things, you know, a year earlier, two years earlier, six months earlier, 
the treatment course does change depending on how early or late we catch head and neck cancer. Yeah. Is that, in your experience, is it for women as well, that Aussie battler culture sort of mentality or has it been mostly with men? Um, mostly with men, head and neck cancer disproportionately affects men. Yeah. Um, lifestyle risk factors um, play a big part in that in terms of smoking, drinking to excess um, and not not accessing healthcare. Mm. Um, so our ratio of men to women is way skewed in the yeah. favour of men. Um, so, yes, I'd say it's... It, it's more men that we see that with. How much of what do you think is due to lifestyle factors or the fact that they're just not seeing the GP? Look, head and neck cancer um, generally comes from sort of two avenues, which is the lifestyle um, factors like smoking and, and drinking to big excess. Mm. Uh, and the other, other group that we see is um, the HPV or human papillomavirus-related cancers. Um, and they can often be in young people who have never smoked and never drank yeah, um, or don't drink to excess at all. You know, they might have one one drink a week socially. It's alarming when you hear of these people that are so health conscious and they've, you know, they've had great lifestyle factors and then for whatever reason this has happened. want to make note of what you're talking about. I love the analogy with the Aussie battler. How did you describe it in terms of like that mindset of just pushing on? Yeah. It's such a huge thing in our culture. I don't know if it's exclusive to Aussies, men in general, but I imagine there'd be a lot of mums out there as well that just don't have the time to take, you know, time for themselves to go see the doctors. They're going to push on looking for the kids, maintaining a household, et cetera. They just keep going. And it's not just with physical health, but it's with mental health as well. And it's not until the pain gets so bad where they literally physically can't do the things that they were trying to continue to push on doing yeah. that they actually do something about it. It's mm. uh, really concerning, something that definitely needs to change over time. I know there's a lot of work in the men's health space at the moment where we're talking about suicide prevention and Are You OK Day and numerous other projects. But collectively, we almost – what's the word I'm looking for? It's a badge of honour to mm. just keep you – know, how hard can you take a punch and keep moving forward? It's exactly. that mindset. you know. I think it is, it's a cultural issue because, you, as you said, badge of honour, people wear that, you know, I worked this amount of overtime this week. That's not good. Like yeah. we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be glorifying overworking and under uh, maintaining ourselves. Mm. Um, and I always think of that saying, you know, you can't keep someone else warm by lighting yourself on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but I like that one. It's normally you can't pour from an empty cup, but yeah. lighting people on fire. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I like but that. It's, I think it's just so great because you can't you can't take care of everyone else if you're you know falling apart. Yeah, um, and be that physically or, or mentally. Um, so self care is so important, and and being healthy and well engaged and taking care of the people around you the way you want to starts with taking care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I encourage this to a lot of parents. The kids are going to model how they actually conduct themselves. And if they're putting their needs last all the time, don't get me wrong, you have to serve and support your family. They are the priority. But at the same time, if you're not prioritising your needs and how you show up in the world and what you actually require to be happy, healthy, successful, just feeling good, then those kids are going to have that mentality of the badge of honour of just grinding and overworking and putting their needs last and yeah. not getting the help when they need it. It's, it's a really interesting thing. It pops up a lot in these conversations. Self-care is so important. 
How do you and how do people in your industry prioritize their self-care? Because I imagine it'd be, there'd be essentially vicarious trauma because you're going through these emotions that the families are going through. A very scared individual is in a very vulnerable position that has potentially left it to a, you know, a long time before they're getting help. It's scary being in hospital. I've been in there myself. You know, you mm. feel very disempowered and you'd be taking a lot of that on. And if you're, you know, obviously you don't want to have that wall up to the point that you're not empathetic and compassionate to the people that you're serving. There has to be that human relationship. But how do you protect yourself? I think self-care and the the mental health of health professionals is such a a massive turning point, talking point in in our industry. you know, just recently we lost another young doctor in Victoria to uh, death by suicide. Yeah. And it's such a big problem. And the the, the initiatives, I, I loathe to call them initiatives because they're not really achieving anything. Mm. What's happening from above us, from executive levels, from government levels, is completely performative. Yeah. So there's a... a, a initiative called um, Socks for Docs Mm. and it's basically like wearing a pair of funky socks Mm. to raise awareness and, you know, you guys can't say me but I'm doing air quotes, raise awareness for the mental health of doctors. Yeah. We don't need awareness. We all know mental health is incredibly important and we all know that health professionals disproportionately suffer from mental health issues because of what we do every day, because of what we see every day um, and because of the systemic um, world that we exist in. So we exist in a structure that requires overtime that, you know, especially doctors, they work such long hours as junior staff um, and they don't get – none of us get paid proportionately for the work that we do um, across nursing, allied health and medicine um, and basically the system sets us up for mental health issues mm. um, and then does nothing about it. And so something like Socks for Docs, there's a feeling in the medical community that it's kind of insulting because yeah. it is just lip service from executives and it doesn't achieve anything, doesn't fix the hours that our doctors have to do doesn't fix the pay that's yeah. unsustainable for us. It doesn't yep. fix anything. Yeah, that's a very valid point. So, so. I guess in terms of what what do we do? Yeah, um, what do you do? What's in your hands? We'll get into what you think <laughs> needs to be done next. So I, I'm very happy that you raised this because I've seen something similar happen in multiple industries. And I won't say what initiative, but there was a few things that were done in the construction industry. And I've had people go, exactly, they actually find it like, a kick in the guts. Mm. It's like, what is this? Like they sit there and they, you know, they wave their flag and whatever else as well, but it's not actually doing anything. Yeah. We're all aware there's a problem. If anything, COVID highlighted that and everyone became really aware of how much of an issue mental health is. It's great that people are sharing their stories, but we need solutions and things that are actually going to move the needle in the right direction. Yeah. It's going to bring about positive changes. Yeah. So in terms of you now, given the fact that, as you said, the system and the hours and that, the actual vocation itself and the pressures that come with it is quite impactful in terms of stress. How do you manage your state now? And I know you obviously go to the gym. That's one thing. What else do you do? So I personally access regular mental health support from a professional because it's not, it's above my pay grade. You know, I'm not 
a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I can't give myself that care. And I also need a place that's totally safe where I can go and I can say all these things to someone who is there solely to support me. Yeah. Um, and that's so important, I think. And it's a totally different can of worms about the state of mental health care in this country and how it's so inaccessible to the yeah. vast majority of us because of cost is so incredibly prohibitive. You know, why can you go to the, the GP and get five free physio sessions but you can't get any subsidised mental health care? Mm. Um, it's such an issue that's, you know, could be six hours on its own. Mm. Um, so, you know, you have to do things like that for yourself and we we really have to continue the push to de-stigmatise that um, and we talk about stigma around mental health a lot but it still exists. It's still... Um, it still feels, I guess, embarrassing for people to say off the cuff, oh, yeah, like I see a psychologist every couple of weeks. Mm. Um, why And why is that? Why is that embarrassing to us? And I think, again, it's tied to that culture of like, she'll be right, mate. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes you have to do things to take care of yourself that are more outside of yourself. Yeah. Um, and then I think the other things are important, um, like good sleep hygiene, I like to – I have the um, the downtime set. So at 9 o'clock every night all the apps on my phone disable because yeah. you just – you need to, um, I think, set yourself up for success in that. Because we can all say to ourselves, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to stop scrolling yep. at whatever scroll, time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I'm definitely going to stop scrolling. And then you, you never do. And, you, you know, you've broken a promise to yourself and that chips away – at your, you know, your self-esteem and your trust in yourself over time. So you got to set yourself up for success in whatever way you can. <laughs> yeah, so instead of saying, I'm going to stop using the phone at nine, you've actually set things in place to, you would actually need to turn the settings off in yeah. order to be able to use them. That's a yeah. very good way of doing it. Yeah, and then you have to, you know, really ask yourself what you're doing if you're going to click that little button to turn the downtime off. Like, do I need to do this? Yeah. No, step away. It's a little barrier. Go read, go read a book. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So all of those kind of things around um, sleep, um, connection is so important. Um, uh, you know, walk, walking, physical exercise of some kind, all of those kind of things um, tie into the picture. Um, you know, the my my work friends and I, there's nothing we love more than a a a couch session at one of each other's houses where we just go, okay, the first hour is a debrief and we're just going to get it all out. Yeah. <laughs> and then we can move on to other topics. We can catch up with each other's lives. That's all fine. But we just need to get it out with people that understand. So have a vent about the yeah. workspace and just what's involved. Yeah. 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 How many of you catch up for that? Um, look, it depends. You know, I've, one of my one of my best mates, she and I do it all the time. Um, sometimes you're in a group. I guess the the risk you always run if you've ever come across a health professional or a couple of health professionals in public, chances are you've heard them say something really dark, and then they've laughed about it to yeah. each other, and you've maybe thought, Jesus, like what? <laughs> it's a coping strategy. Are we these get the it. people that take care of us? <laughs> but yes, exactly. The, the longer you work in healthcare, the darker your sense of humour becomes. Yeah, mm. yeah. I imagine it would be. I, I love a few things that popped up. The fact that yeah, we do need to remove the stigma from people accessing mental health services. The fact that you mentioned, you know, they pretty much are not accessible right now. Yeah. The waiting lists are crazy for people that actually get to the point where they decide. You know what? Things are really bad now. 
maybe friends, family, they've gone, you have to see someone. And then they ask for help and it's like, cool, you've got to wait six months. Yeah. And you have to be screened. You have to go through this test in the GP where they have to ask you all these really invasive questions to even see if you're suitable for it. Then you get approved and then you work out that you only get 80 bucks or so subsidized anyway and sessions can be $250 at a time. Yeah. It's quite challenging for families and not to mention, as you mentioned, people in your workspace that have trouble with the hours, mm. working overtime. When do they have the time if they have a family to be exactly. able to access these mental health services? Yeah. And I think there's also that element of, again, our, uh, this issue we have in our culture where if you and I are friends and you say to me, Jesus, like, I'm really struggling, and that's probably like really hard for you to say mm. in the first place, our first reaction is, oh, shit, I need this person to be okay, so I'll just tell them, like, it's all going to be okay, it's going to be fine, like, yeah. everything will work out. And that's our sort of default um, reaction when someone around us is struggling. And I think are you okay days a good start in that sense um, but people actually need to access the resources around that in terms of okay what do I do when I've initiated that conversation like I can't just say are you all right and then be like oh, I don't know what to do after that that's it you have to be prepared for them to say that they're not okay yeah and then you sort of touched on it's almost like toxic positivity where people mm. are saying you know these are all the great things you've got going in your life these are all the solution these are all the positivity and it's invalidating how that person's actually feeling in their experience because yep. despite the fact that on paper they might have some great things going for them, they're not feeling very good right now. Yeah. And then they don't want to speak up again. Maybe they didn't get the support that they were hoping to get and they yep. do get put into that box. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge as well that you can do everything right. So you can be the person who exercises and sleeps, you know, well and doesn't doom scroll at the middle in the middle of the night and um sees your friends and family and you can still feel like absolute shit mm. and still need more than just those typical kind of self-care systems yeah mm. mentioning all those things it is a sad situation when that's the first point of contact people normally go i'm in pain i don't want to feel like this anymore whether it's physical pain emotional pain and you know they get referred to antidepressants or something like that that is one element and there is a time and a place for it as an intervention. Mm. I think other things should be explored. All the things that you've mentioned, such as lifestyle factors, their sleep, how you're sleeping, are you getting enough exercise, how the quality of your relationships. Talking about loneliness, there's a lot of people that have a support network, but they don't feel connected. Maybe they don't feel heard by yep. the people that are around them. Maybe there's not, you know, they know that they're there, but they don't really feel like they understand what they're going through. And yep. I think the connection in relationships is so important. I love the fact that you guys have that because I'm sure, I know your mum's a nurse and this is the wrong example, but you might have had friends that you've known for years that you could go catch up with and you could talk about what you're going through with work and they could sit there and be a shoulder to lean on. But they really can't relate to your experience. Yeah. But you've got that support network of people at your work where you all meet up, have a bitch vent session, <laughs> <laughs> get it all out and then, uh, and then talk about the positive things and where you want to be going next. That is really healthy. It's a really yeah. – I think everyone should be doing that in every industry. Yeah. It's a, it's strategy as much as, you know, every, uh, other aspects of your life require a bit of strategy. Sometimes picking who you get your support from is strategic as well and you have amazing friends and they might not be the ones that you go to with this sort of stuff. Yeah. But then you've got other friends who um, – you know, are going to understand or have relatable experience that can um, connect with what you're saying in a different way than other people in your life can. Yeah. And so you go to them because you're going to get that validation and you're going to get that support that you need rather than that 
invalidating moment of like, oh, I don't know how to deal with this and I just need you to be okay so I'm just going to tell you everything's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it is a scary thing when people put up a wall. Not only do they not want to deal with their own negative experiences but when someone else is not doing the best, mm-hmm. they view them as a downer. Like they yeah. bring them down the vibe and they start to get excluded even though they're withdrawing more and people don't check in on them. I think the next thing is when you ask someone how they're doing and they turn around and say they're doing great, if you think that they're not, maybe I wouldn't say pro because that's invasive, but just go, look, I've noticed some things. Uh, you know, you just don't seem like you're okay at the moment. Is there more going on? Because it doesn't just, oh, yep, he said it's, he's okay or she said she's okay. That's done. That's me. Good day for the day. Yeah. They're sorted. It's a, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't even have to be as scary as a face-to-face you know, version of that. Um, one of my, all my close friends know I'm not a texter, um, but one of you know one of my very best friends, she um, knows I'm not a texter and I'm not someone who is going to be in contact with the people I love day, every single day. I just can't do it. <laughs> um, and I just prefer to see people I love face to face and catch up then. I don't need to text and be like, how was your day? You know, I'm just going to see you if I want to talk about that sort of stuff. Um, and so every now and then if she hasn't heard from me for a while, she'll just do the old, hey, hope everything's okay, like let's catch up for dinner mm. and she knows that's how I am. And so it's about it's about looking without yourself sometimes and going, okay, I know the people around me, how is going to be, what's going to be the best way to let them know that I'm here for them and for some people it will be just a text of like, hey, I'm here if you want to talk, let me know. I can call you on the way home from work or something like that. Or for other people it's going to be um, dinner plans, you know, on Friday night. Or And then for others it's going to be the face-to-face conversation because they're going to need that that human connection to open up um, rather than that medium in between. Um, so, yeah, like you know your friends, you know your family. Sometimes we just need to look without ourselves and, you know, take the focus outwards yeah yeah because we all get you know everyone's so busy um everyone has their own stuff going on and so we can get too caught up in our own lives sometimes and we forget the people around us even no matter how much we love them yeah it's it's a challenge i know you know notoriously particularly with social media how often people are we should catch up soon. Yeah. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And liking your friend's Instagram post is not connection. Yeah. You know? And so you might think to yourself, oh, like we caught up just the other day. And then you realise, oh, no, I've liked six Instagram posts from them since the last time we caught up, but I actually haven't seen them for six months. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, ex- yeah, you're exactly right. Yes. Social media is not connection. So people check in on your friends and, you know, whether it's with a text, but they might be kind of person that isn't really text orientated Mm. so find a way to catch up with them connect whether it's a phone call it doesn't have to be hard it doesn't have to be a huge outing with a a massive gathering it can be a phone call on the way home from work just at a convenient time just a and it doesn't have to be a big heavy conversation of like are you okay i don't think you are you know all that sort of stuff sometimes someone who's not okay just needs to have a normal conversation and catch up and have that connection and go be reminded that there are people in their life that value them and care about them and they're not a burden and they're not difficult um, and that they can participate in a normal way even when they don't feel great. Yeah, that is a very valid point because I'm thinking of many people that struggle when they've gone through a loss, potentially lost a loved one, 
family member or something like that and then everyone is just, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And yes, there's a part of it, but quite often you know, it's not distracting them from what's going on, but maybe they just want to have a conversation that isn't related to the trauma that they've been through or the health condition that, or problem that they're currently navigating their way through. Yeah. You know, they might want to vent, but they might not. They might just yeah. want to be a normal person for a moment and, as you said, participate in life. Mm, yeah. A lot of my patients love a, um, a football raz. You know, because they come in and it's a it's a terrible experience. Every time they're coming in to see us, they're worried that, you know, they might have cancer again or something might be wrong and something might be, you know, something might have changed. And it's a scary experience. Every time you have to come to hospital, regardless of it, of it being just a checkup or a, you know, a crisis moment, it's terrifying. Yeah. And it's, it's not an environment that is conducive, I guess, to laughter or connection or anything like that so I, I guess I always try to make it a point of humanizing all my patients not that you should have to try to do that <laughs> of yeah. course they're all all amazing incredible humans with their own lives and um, rich tapestries you know um, but I think demonstrating that you know that about them um, is really important as well and that really helps with connection and with um uh, continued access to healthcare. You know, a lot of people are at risk of um, de-investing in their own health journey if they don't feel seen or heard or understood. Mm. Um, so, finding something to relate to. So, uh, shout out to my pie supporters because I'm always going to give you shit about that. Um, whether it be that or you know, a lot of my older gents, uh, hobby farmers and stuff like that. So we talk about gardens or. Um, you know, grandkids are always a good way to connect to a lot of people. Um, so finding those bits of humanity inside the system of medicine is really important, I think. Yeah, I, I think not even just in or exclusive to the system of medicine, but just externally in the community engaging with members mm. is an essential skill. People want to feel seen, heard, connected. Just a passing compliment. Just any. There's so many ways you can interact with people, and if you look hard enough, there's always common ground. Yeah, there's always an experience or something you can relate about, whether it's just a moment or something from your past. There's always something, and so many people are lacking that connection. And it's really sad to see. So I love the fact that you and others are doing this in the medical industry. I've known many nurses out there that have been very passionate about that particular thing because, you know, they, are, they what's the word I'm looking for? They view them as a number and that mm -hmm. could be potentially as a way to protect themselves from not building relationships with people that, you know, might have an emotional impact on them. Yeah. But it's so hard for those people that have been taken away from their friends, family, they're not in their homes, they're in a place with beeps and sounds and lights and all these things, yeah. scared shitless. It's mm. a, and then people just viewing them as a stat, flicking through the paper and going on. It's yeah. a, yeah. Mm. Awesome that you're doing that. Really happy to hear it. In terms of, I want to go back to one thing and then yeah. I have another question. Sure. <laughs> one of the things is in terms of the healthcare providers that you engage with, so you've got nurses, doctors, et cetera, people in your position, how many of these people are actively working on their self-care and prioritising their needs? Oh, I guess it's hard, I guess it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, I would say that a lot of people are aware of the need to do all of that, whether or not um, their external environments set them up to be able to do that with the frequency required is a different question. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's a really it's a really hard question to answer. I, I couldn't give you a number, I don't think. You gave me a very good answer in terms of whether or not their external factors or their environment gives them the capacity mm. to be able to prioritise their self-care. And I yeah. believe that some people make it too hard. They want to lose weight and they think they have to go to the gym five days per week, an hour, yeah. and then they're going to sacrifice sleep to be able to do it. Yeah. Or it has to be meditation, two half-an-hour sessions a day. And they're like, it's just simply unsustainable, doesn't suit their lifestyle. Yeah. Might do it for a week and then they go, no, nah, I'll do it when things settle down, when things aren't so busy. So I guess it's choosing things like positive relationships, checking with a friend, a little mm. bit of self-care, whether it's a lavender bubble bath for someone or doing some push-ups or going for a walk with their dog. Like these yeah. little things that people can do that make them feel good. And it's not just applicable to your industry but to just everyone in general. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, before we started, we talked about the quick win. Yeah. So everyone's going to find their own quick win. Like what is the thing that makes you feel good Yeah. Um, that you can just do? So. What's yours? <laughs> Um, what's mine? Uh, I enjoy a little bit of ice cream after yep. dinner. Yeah. That's a quick win for me. Um, you know, a gym's not necessarily a quick win, but I do. That's it's sort of a non-negotiable for me. Um, and it's not, it's not at all motivation. It's just discipline. Like I just don't, I just do it because I know I need to do that as part of my self-care. Yeah. Um, what else? Yeah, probably ice cream comes out on top. <laughs> I actually spoke with someone recently, one of our listeners, Sam, and she said she start. She said you have to start off the day. You have to do one bad thing for yourself every day. And for <laughs> hers was chocolate, and apparently she started the day every morning with a piece of chocolate. She's fit and like yeah. trains and everything. I was a very health conscious individual, but that was how she would start the day. And I'm like, you know what? It's some people, if you have the mindset that you can allocate yourself, whether it be ice cream, it is a, a self-care practice and I assume you're not eating the entire tub when you do it, no. depending <laughs> on the circumstances or depending on the, uh, the environment. But, yeah, allowing yourself to have these things, like a bit of a treat and balancing it with all the other great things that you're doing to manage your state is okay. But yeah. when you decide, you know what, I've been so strict for so long, now I'm just going to do all the cookies know, yeah. and you eat everything and you're going to do that yeah. for the next month yeah. as a coping strategy for life, then it's a problem. Yeah, we really have to try and kill off black and white thinking. Like we're not, we're not all or nothing beings. We can exist in the grey. We can, yeah. you know, nothing's good is food particularly. Nothing is good or bad. Like it is just food, and we don't need to ascribe moral um, characteristics to it. Like you can have your piece of chocolate in the morning. I mean, this is the perfect month to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, your, yeah. this person needs an advent calendar for all of the year round. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a little, there's something so satisfying about that, peeling that little square back and getting yeah. your little chocolate. is like, so it just appeals to our very primitive brains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, you can try and, there is that element of discipline that you mentioned going to the gym and obviously you've got your benefits you get from that. But also there are certain things that we're hardwired to do. It doesn't mean that you're going to, smash 10 blocks of chocolate in the day, but that little dopamine hit and the, that wiring that you enjoy wrapping, unwrapping the chocolate and devouring it, it's part of the human experience and yeah. should be allowed to do that you know, yeah. in a moderate way. But and we know like there's so much evidence that restriction just ends up in blowouts yeah. of whatever kind, you know, you're trying to, trying to change whatever habit you're trying to change, you know. We know, <laughs> we know that yeah. going that all or nothing of like, oh, I'm not going to have any chocolate, no sugar, no lollies, no this, no bread, no that, you know, we know it, it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting because when you look at things like the fitness industry in general, I believe that most industries, I'm going to use fitness as an example, it's people are set up to fail. Mm. So they put them on a really restrictive diet, ultra low calories that they feel like crap, really high training frequency that they simply cannot sustain long term. They get some quick wins early on. Usually they're not the wins they'd hoped for. Maybe the scale weight goes down, but a lot of that's water weight, body fat, muscle loss, all these things, not just exclusively fat. Mm. And then they rebel and they end up going worse than what they started and go, oh, my God, I'll start back in a month. And they think they need their trainer again. They're set up this way, that all or nothing mentality with everything. Even workaholics, you know, it's just 100%, uh, 100% getting to the standard that they simply can't sustain and then the business uh, fails or falls yeah. apart. And, yeah, it's that hustle culture that mm. I think we've got ingrained in us as well. Yeah. Very interesting. Next question I have for you, because I want to come back to this before I forget. What are the discerning factors that help people recover when they have gone into hospital? Because you might have two people that come in with similar situations, similar problems. You know, maybe what are the factors that will likely lead to them having a successful transition out and to the rest of the world and yeah. a healthy life? Yeah. So I guess I've I've kind of floated around the head and neck cancer topic obviously that's my specialty um i think it'd be valuable here to give a bit of context about what a journey looks like for a lot of patients um so after you've had that referral from you know a gp or whoever um to a specialist because something is a bit not quite right um you are seen by a specialist biopsies are, are taken of the area in concern um sent for pathology get some results uh, there's going to be scientific words in those results but essentially what it boils down to is you've got cancer of some kind um, and in head and neck the typical cancer that we see is what's called a squamous cell carcinoma um, or SCC you see other types as well you know melanoma basal cell carcinomas on the the skin surface are um, common as well um, but the the serious type, the invasive type, the type we see in tongue, in in the throat, in those kind of critical musculature, uh, the SCCs, um, they're invasive and aggressive and um, bad news. Hmm. So after you've seen your specialist, seen, you know, you've had a biopsy, you've had a confirmation of disease, um, if you've got, um, if you've had a referral to a public system like um, where I work at Monash, You'll be discussed in a meeting um, and that meeting is uh, what's called a multidisciplinary team meeting. So um, enos and throat doctors, plastic surgeons, max fax surgeons, um, uh, radiographers, radiologists, nurses, speech pathologists, dietitian, the whole works. Like it's a brain's trust wow. in a big room um, talking about what type of cancer you've got, where it is looking at your imaging, looking at your pathology and then making a treatment plan for you based on all of the expertise in that room, which is a lot really? of expertise. How long does that go for? So ours runs from uh, 1 o'clock to 2.30. And again, I've done air quotes, 2.30 on a Thursday afternoon um, because we can have upwards of 20 patients on the list to discuss in that hour and a half. Yeah. Um, and then from that, we go straight into a clinic to see all those patients after we've discussed them. So sometimes we run overtime, um, but we do have a wonderful consultant who keeps us on on track as well. And you know, if, things, if the discussion is being coming unproductive and getting off track, um, we do bring it. We try to bring it back because we've got a lot of people to discuss and a lot of decisions to make. Mm. So 
that that room full of people is going to make a decision about what is your optimal treatment pathway. And so there's basically two arms um, for most people. The first option is uh, surgery. So if the surgeons can confidently get all of your cancer and then treat you afterwards, that's what they're going to do. So typically the surgery arm is surgery plus minus radiotherapy afterwards to make sure that they've absolutely got every single cancer cell that could possibly be there Mm. um, and reduce your risk of recurrence later down the track. Sometimes if you've got early disease, so what's called a T1, um, you don't need radiotherapy afterwards and we keep that in our back pocket just in case because the chances of recurrence for you are low. Um, And in terms of staging, we go by uh, a specific set of staging called T-staging, T1 being the smallest cancer um, and T4 being the largest that we see. Um, and then other times our recommendation will be radiotherapy or chemoradiotherapy on its own um, without surgery. So, again, that depends on the location of the cancer, how big it is, and a few other different factors like um, the, the genetic status of the cancer that makes it more, um, more treatable by radiotherapy or chemotherapy um, versus other types of cancer which are radio-resistant and need surgery to get them out. Okay. And then so after that discussion's happened, you're going to be sitting around waiting in a clinic room downstairs and then we all come down and we all start seeing patients. Basically, the doctors will explain that what the diagnosis is and what their ideal surgical or radiotherapy treatment plan is. And then, of course, the patient always has the option to decline <laughs> Um, which we do see, sadly, sometimes, um, and or to accept our recommendations and to move forward from there. If you're going to have surgery, then you get to see basically everyone um, and everyone will talk to you about their part of your journey. Um, and for a speech pathologist, for, that's uh, a really important part for me because I have to tell that patient um, all this pre-op information about what's going to happen to them, what their journey is going to be like, Um, because for a lot of the larger cancers having surgery, um, what that means is that you're going to end up with an altered airway either temporarily or permanently. Mm. And there's two types of altered airways. So the first type is a tracheostomy, which is a breathing tube at the front of your neck that we insert to protect your airway after surgery. Make sure that you've got a way to breathe while swelling and all of that sort of stuff settles down. And then the second type is what's called a laryngectomy. And a laryngectomy is the permanent and irreversible removal of your whole larynx, so your voice box, um, I guess in lay people terms, including your vocal cords. And then what we do is we have to refashion your trachea, so your windpipe to the front of your neck and you breathe through that that stoma or hole in the front of your neck for the rest of your life and never again through your mouth and your nose. So I guess you can imagine that requires a lot of preoperative discussion and a lot of education to say this is what's going to happen this is the process from when you be admitted to hospital to surgery to ICU to wards to rehab if required to home um, and what that journey looks like Um, so I guess coming back to your original question around what kind of sets these people up for success um, in the face of so much difficulty because this journey um is typically at least 12 months because 
you have surgery, you might be in hospital for two weeks recovering from your surgery, and then you go home. And then four weeks after that, you're probably, if you had a large tumour that's going to, you know, need a big surgery, you're more likely than not going to need radiation afterwards to, as I said, make sure that we've got everything and that there's no chance of this coming back. Yeah. Um, and then so six weeks after your surgery, you're going to start eight weeks of radiation. And radiation goes for, you know, six to eight weeks depending on your, on your dose schedule. Um, but then the... The, the toxicities from radiotherapy continue to build for the two weeks after your treatment finishes mm -hmm. and then they slowly taper off. So we're not talking about, you know, a 12-week journey and then done, everything's back to normal. We're yeah. talking about 12 months yeah. at the very least. Wow. Um, and then we're not only factoring in radiotherapy after effects but we're also talking about, okay, what did we do in your surgery? Did we take half of your tongue? Did we take all of your tongue? Did we take a piece of your jaw? Do you have to learn how to chew again? Do you have to learn how to speak again? Um, so we're talking about months and months and months worth of a journey, um, which is really intimidating and terrifying to think about if you're in the position on the other side of the chair, on the other side of the desk of hearing, shit, I've got cancer. This is the worst day of my life. And then you can only imagine that all of that stuff that I've talked about after yeah. becomes a blur because all you can think is I've got cancer what am I going to do um so it's sort of a repeated effort for us of education um and being there throughout the journey and then <coughs> excuse me um the thing that I guess the things that set people up for success in that journey is physical fitness um, because you have to be, I uh, guess, robust mm. to go through all of that. Um, not to say that you can't get through it if you're someone who's never walked into a gym in your life. Of course not. Um, but it does help, especially if you stay active throughout your treatment. You know, if you're someone who walks, continuing to do that is really important. Um, things like the connection that we've we've touched on before, so the the people who have strong connections even if it's only one person um also do well because there's a point for every single patient where it all hits them and they're like my life is never going to be the same and um i guess things that sound obvious to you or i perhaps but smoking cessation mm. stopping drinking especially if it's to excess um those kind of things are so important if you've you've had any kind of health diagnosis, but particularly in cancer. Yeah. <laughs> so people out there that obviously getting, living a healthy lifestyle and ideally stopping the things that probably have contributed to getting the cancer, such as smoking, drinking, are there tests that people could do other than just a GP? Is there a blood test that cancer would pop up? Is there inflammation markers or anything like that that people would be aware in the early stages? Um, no. Is no. there short and unscientific answer the long and more scientific answer is kind of yeah. um but nothing that would mean anything to you know joe or john or mary out in the community yeah. you know who's just living their life um so no the the key part is knowing yourself and going i've had that ulcer on the tip of my tongue for six weeks and that's not normal yeah yeah yeah, that's, it's interesting because I guess people don't want to be a bother. They don't want to complain. They don't want to yeah. pester the 
doctor, and doctors probably get frustrated with people that keep coming back with ailments, but you know, it is your life on the line. We are running out of time, and there's another thing that I know you're very passionate about sharing, and that would be in relation to a vaccine that mm. would prevent. Do you want to expand on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I touched on earlier, there's a subset of head and neck cancers that are caused by the human papillomavirus. Um, and we're seeing HPV-related oral cancers in really young people. Like I'm talking people in their 20s, um, people in their 30s, people in their 40s. Like this is really young to be having incredibly, you know, life-changing cancer diagnoses. Um, but it is a an issue that we're seeing. And at some point in in the future, I think the projections are around like 2050, 2060, somewhere in those realms, we aren't going to see HPV-related oral cancer anymore because of the Gardasil vaccine. Mm. Um, but at the moment, we're kind of on the upward trajectory of more and more diagnoses of HPV-related cancer in people who um, grew up pre-Gardasil. In both genders? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Still, still skewed more men than women. Really? And I thought I'm, only women got the Gardasil vaccine in Not anymore. School. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, so Gardasil vaccine was developed at the Princess Alexandra in Brisbane, um, go Aussies, and it, uh, it vaccinates against um, multiple different types, different strains of HPV, including one that is known to cause cancer, both oral and cervical. Um, so from, I think, 2006, 2007, all girls are vaccinated at high school. And then I think from 2012, all boys are vaccinated as well. So we're going to have a generation that has wiped out HPV-related mm. oral cancers, which is awesome, but we're not there yet um, because we're still seeing people pre-vaccination. Should adults that haven't had the vaccination get the vaccination or is it too late? Um, it's not – I guess it's not too late. It's not too late at all. And the, I, I don't want to, I guess, put the fear into anyone um, unnecessarily because a lot of – um, HPV infections do clear themselves, but there's a small subset of people who never quite clear it and they're the ones who are developing cancer later down the track, you know, 20 years after infection. Mm. Um, so, no, it's not too late and you can certainly ask your doctor about it. Um, and I think importantly making sure that your kids uptake because it's free at high school, you know, making sure that your kids get that vaccine because... Um, we can, it's preventable, you know, we can stop it in its tracks and yeah. we're on track to do that, as I said, in, in 30 years, um, but we're still seeing HPV-related oral cancers in adults who were, you know, not at school when the vaccine started. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. scary thought and obviously prevention is a lot better than cure. So thank you very much for raising that awareness. You've brought a lot of things to my attention that I wasn't aware of and I'm sure a lot of people are probably going to rush in and see their GP. <laughs> a lot of things to consider. Caitlin, I hope you had fun. It was really good to have you on. It was lovely. Thank you. This was episode 39, I believe, so one more till 40 and then we'll probably have a break for the rest of the year. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.
Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy.